we are wrapping up our leadership study this morning by looking at the deacons. And I want to give a, a quick word before we dive in. Because you guys typically hear me pull out maybe a, a Greek word or a Hebrew word here or there. And I really try not to do that unless it really alters the meaning of, of what the text is. Where you know sometimes our English just uses a word that may feel odd to us. And if you go to the original language, it gives a better picture. I'm going to probably do that a little bit more than normal today because some of the verses, I'm intentionally using the ESV like I normally do because when you read it, you go, that just, that just sounds odd. So there's, there's just places in Scripture where sometimes our English just, it leaves us with a bunch of weird questions that if we understood the original language, they wouldn't be there. So we, we may read a little bit more of that this morning than normal. But why we're... We're taking time to look at this is because the, what the deacon does pairs really well with what the elders do. And if you remember last week, we talked about how elders shepherd themselves and others in God's heart and word through a life of humble discipleship. We saw that as, as Paul was writing to these two young guys that he was you know, training up in the faith, Timothy and Titus. He says, here's what I need you to do in your personal lives but as you're leading the church, you also need to be raising up people who are doing this as well. And we, we also learned that it's, it's not just about elders, right? That, that Paul didn't write to Timothy and to Titus just a, a manual for what church leadership is. He was writing letters to these guys, giving them counsel. So we said that there's application for church leadership, but there's also application for personal life. And I shared with you guys the story of how I lost my keys and how if I had just remembered God's heart and God's word, that would have dramatically changed my response, uh, which those of you since then have asked me this week if I have lost my keys again. I'm happy to tell you no. I have, I know where my keys are. They're right here in my pocket. So we're good. We're good today. But we also talked about last week how if what God is after is this life of humble discipleship, you know, I used the word spiritual maturity as well then don't disqualify yourself based on the power of production self-mindset. Don't, don't say, well, I don't belong in church leadership because I, I can't do this as well, or I'm not skilled in this, or I don't feel like I could do that. It, it, it's, if spiritual maturity is what Paul is writing to these guys after, we are all capable of, of growing and maturing in the spirit of Christ. So don't disqualify yourself where God is not disqualifying you. So we're going to wrap up our leadership thing looking at deacons today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6, and we're actually just going to camp out on seven verses today. So if, if you've ever wondered what is the fewest number of verses I think I've covered in a sermon, it's going to be today. Acts 6, 1 through 7, uh, and I'll kind of walk us through why these verses in particular in a second, but they're going to show us today how deacons assist the elders in uniting the church into God's image through the serving of the flock's physical needs. So they, they're working primarily to actually unite the church in God's image through meeting physical needs. We'll unpack this as we go. So beginning in verse 1 of Acts chapter 6, this is Luke writing, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. 
Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. God, we're grateful that you've given us a little bit of time over the past month or so to just recognize what are all the things uh, that we see you doing in the life of New River Fellowship. Lord, we see your heart being made real in the lives of people. We see people coming to know you. God, we see your image going forth. We see you leading us to reach out to our community, drawing others from different areas in our New River Valley community to, to help us see, hey, here's where we can go be the hands and feet of Jesus. Lord, it has been my heart as, as the pastor, and I pray that this would be our heart moving forwards, that just pausing to talk a couple weeks on leadership is, is not just a, I don't know, not a spur of the moment thing, but Lord, just an effort of us to say, God, we see you at work. We see your heart being made real, and we don't want that to just happen by accident moving forwards. Father, we want to place ourselves in a position where we're going to continue to grow in your heart and to be able to do this in the community that you've given. So, Father, thank you for letting us just kind of see what you're after in leadership and show us how this doesn't just apply to church leadership, Lord. That might be the context we're reading it in, but God, your word is, is much bigger than that. Show us how this affects us as well. In your name we pray, amen. So as we begin looking at Acts 6, guys, there's a, a couple things just in the first verse alone that, that we need to pick up on to kind of get this idea that when Luke is talking about deacons being introduced it's more than just meeting needs. In fact, it actually starts with the deacons helping these elders, these apostles, to unite the church into God's image. Okay, So a couple things in the Greek that, that clue us in. If we read verse 1, we're, we're told there's a problem. right? There's a complaint by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The first key word in there is neglect. Right? So what is taking place? Is this just an accidental thing? Are they intentionally being not taken care of? My, my feeling is that it was intentional. The Greek word for neglect there better translates to be looked over. So if you're like walking into a room, you're trying to find somebody, you're looking past everybody else in the room to find that one person is, is the picture we're getting. So there's one group that's intentionally neglecting the widows of another group. Not a great place to start. So then you kind of ask yourself, well, what were they being neglected in? In the daily distribution. Most of us in English would say, there should be another couple words there, like distribution of what? Of, of food, of clothes, of, of something. What, what is being distributed? But the word there, and it will sound familiar to you, it's the Greek noun diakonea 
which comes from, and I don't, I do not pronounce these words very well. This is as close as I can get. Diakoneo is the noun. It comes from the verb diakoneo, which kind of sounds like our English word deacon. This is where this comes from. And it just simply means to serve, to attend to somebody's needs. So Luke is saying it's, it's not like they're just like waiting in line for clothes or waiting in line for some physical thing and they're being neglected. Luke says, no, inherently, this group of widows is not being taken care of at all, at all. And we're told it comes up because there's, there's these two distinctions, two different groups, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Some of your Bibles may have a footnote that says a Hellenist is just a term for a Greek-speaking Jew. But it, that doesn't necessarily explain a whole lot. When you ask yourself, why, what is Luke doing here? He's, he's being intentional to use some cultural identifiers, right? This is all the church, okay? This is all believers. This is believers overlooking believers. And Luke says this overlooking, this intentional overlooking is along cultural lines, that there's a group in the church that says, well, we're, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, but I'm more comfortable with my tribe over here, so I'm not going to do anything for you there. It says, you're, you're, you are a brother and sister to me in Christ, but culturally I know nothing about you, so I'm going to choose to not do anything with you. You can see where this, this is a major problem. And this is a problem not just in terms of, oh, people aren't having their needs met. There is a division in the unity of God's image that is taking place in the church. And it grows to the point where, verse 2, the apostles step in. Now, at this point, with the believers kind of spreading out and growing, it'd be safe to assume the apostles aren't necessarily sitting in every single church gathering but when they hear that this is taking place, they round everybody up. They say, we have to nip this in the bud, as Barney Fife used to say. We have to nip this in the bud now. We have to take care of this. And they call everybody together, and they say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And I'll tell you, as, as a servant-hearted person who grew up in a youth group where we served a lot of tables, this just feels odd. Right? Why are they... Why is serving tables such a bad thing? So again, a couple key words in verse 2. You look at the word right, where they say it's not right. Last week we talked about a different kind of right, a, a right that implied this is in the image of God. This right is different. This is their Greek word, arestos, which means pleasing. But it means pleasing in context of obedience, right? So they're saying if we serve tables, this is not pleasing to the one I'm ultimately trying to serve. And the verb give up means to leave behind or neglect. So it's not like, oh, I'm just forgetting to do this. It's saying you're, you're making me choose to not do something in order to take care of this. Where you see preaching in English, there's also no Greek word there. So it, there's, the translators took a little bit of creative liberty to say that's probably what the apostles were doing. But there is no Greek word there. But there is a Greek word where it says serve, and it's the diakoneo word, to attend, to minister to. All of this to say, I think a better reading of verse 2 would be, it's not pleasing to God when we leave behind his word 
to meet the needs of others. Another way you could put it, God called us to obey him by attending to his word, not attending to the physical needs. And I will be careful because when they say it's not right, it's not pleasing, they're not saying we would never do this or that we should never do this. Okay, The elders, the apostles are not saying we're never going to serve. They're just saying, look, God has put before us a calling. And there's an issue arising that really is going to pull us from our calling if we don't raise up people who are going to help us live this well. And before we kind of talk about the application with this in mind, church, we need to understand, is this a needs meeting problem? Is this the elders saying, I don't want to roll up my sleeves and get to work because God has called me to preach and teach the word? Which is what it kind of looks like in English, right? That, that these apostles are maybe a little bit too high to step down and serve. Or is there something else going on? If you look at the first preceding four chapters in Acts, because Luke just kind of starts to get into this in chapter 1. It's not really there yet. There's a pattern that's taking place. The first four chapters, or the chapters 2 through 5, essentially, Luke is is kind of repeating a pattern over and over and over again. Those of you in our community groups, you guys have seen this pattern because we've been walking through this. But Luke does this pattern of the church is growing, the church faces persecution, sometimes internal, sometimes external, but something comes up and halts the church's growth. There's a reminder of the gospel. So sometimes it's Peter giving a sermon. Sometimes it's somebody just saying, hey, uh, remember this is who God is. It's, sometimes it's one verse. Sometimes it's like 30. But there's a reminder of who God is and what he did in Jesus. And then as they're reminded of it, you see people committing their lives to it. And then the church is off and running again. So in Acts 2, the spirit comes fills everybody, and immediately there's an instance of persecution. Because all the Jews look up and say, those guys are crazy. In fact, they must be drunk at 9 in the morning. That's how crazy they look. And Peter says, no, 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 it's 9 in the morning. There's no way we're drunk. He gives a, a long sermon, eloquently talking about the Old Testament and how it fits with Jesus. He preaches the gospel. People come to know Christ. Churches united in discipleship. Acts 2, 42 through 47, those of you, we, we know that. They keep going. Acts 3 and 4 shows more external persecution from the Jews as the church is growing. There's another gospel message. More people come to know Christ. More unity as the church grows. Acts 5, you get both internal and external persecution in Acts 5. It's almost like Luke was saying, saying I spent too much time in 3 and 4. I got to fit in more examples. And he shows Ananias and Sapphira, this, this couple that was tricking the church, and they, they literally paid for it with their lives. And then they also have, again, more Jews out to get them, throwing them in prison. Each instance, there's a reminder of the gospel, and then they grow. They grow in discipleship. So if you look at Acts 6, church, just in these seven verses, same thing. Verse 1, the disciples are increasing in number, but then a problem this time we see it's an internal persecution. You have a group inside the church saying, we are not going to take care of that group inside the church because they're culturally different. There's a reminder of who Christ is and what he came to do as the apostles say, hey, look, remember our calling. Remember what God has given us to do. This is not okay. There's a response 
they do something and it pleases the whole church. And what they do, they raise up people to tend to this. And then in verses 5, 6, 7, you see the word of God continues to increase. I say all of that to say this, church. If we read Acts 6 as just a mindset of, oh, the deacons are just going to go take care of all the needs within the church, then we're mistaken. Because though they physically do meet needs, there is something else that is at stake. That the church, as it is just in this infant, fledgling season of learning what it is to follow Jesus, right? We're, we're not very far removed from Christ leaving earth. So they're still learning what does it look like to follow Jesus. All these instances of persecution that come up, there had to be not just one person, but a group of people who are saying, we need to watch for, man, what are all these struggles that are going on in the church. What is this group struggling with here? What are they struggling with? And we have to ensure that we are growing in this community together or we are not united in the image of God. This is the context that Acts 6 comes to us in. So if we're thinking about application for church leadership, we would say, look, then this is a function that the deacons assist elders in doing. Very pragmatically, I would be asking the church to raise up people to serve with me to help us do this, right? That there is only one of me, and I cannot always keep up with every single one, but as a pastor, I want to know where you're at. I want to know how we can be praying, how we can be serving, how we can be working together to build the, the kingdom. And this is where deacons are introduced. Remember Paul, if you guys were here two weeks ago when we talked about what the goal of church leadership is in Ephesians 4. Paul says, look, we are growing until we all attain to unity in the body of Christ, to maturity in the faith. And that's not a work that we typically think about when we think about doing the work in the church. But guys, I mean, we're seeing like some of these, these people are friends with the apostles who knew Jesus personally. They're not far removed from actually having Jesus on earth. And already they are struggling to remain united. Okay, think about now us a couple thousand years after this. Our struggles are still there. We still wrestle with what this unity looks like. And so while there's a group of elders who the big picture, the spiritual leadership, the, the preaching, the teaching of the word and leading the church and all of that, while they have this, this task to lead the church to be united in Christ, the deacons also have a place to help do this. But as I've said, you know, we, this is not just a manual on church leadership. So there's practical application too. And just for me, as I'm reading this, I'm going, okay, why do we need deacons to begin with? Because we were dividing over cultural differences. We were allowing there to be division in the church. And when they were divided, they stopped meeting each other's needs. So another way to say this, they allowed cultural differences to justify why they did not need to love one another. So where do we do this? Because i got to tell you, it is, 
That is a hard work for most churches to be able to say there are brothers and sisters who across every different line don't look like me. And we're seeing from people who literally would have known Jesus personally or would have been like one friend away from knowing Jesus personally, they really struggled with letting the image of God be more important to them than a cultural identifier. Just somebody that looked different, somebody that thought different, somebody that acted different, somebody that grew up different. If we're thinking Hellenist being a more Gentile upbringing and Hebrew being a Jew, a Jewish upbringing. So for every moment we're able to say, well, it's okay for me to not love them because of blank. Surely that's not in God's image. And maybe we're not actually saying, okay, well, I'm not going to love them physically. But if we're, as James will put it, and we'll see later, if we are serving out of partiality, saying, well, these people over here think more like me, so they're probably going to get the majority of my time and attention. We cannot allow division over cultural differences in the church. Because when the apostles, you think about this, the ones who knew Jesus best, when they see this taking place, they say, this has got to stop. They meet it head on. And they meet it head on by saying, we have to establish leaders who that's going to be their job, is going to make sure that this does not take place. There's a unity problem, and the deacons play a role, but you and I play a role. So practically, what does this look like? What do the deacons do? What are some things that you and I can do to make sure we are working together to hold that unity in the kingdom? Well, that's where they go next. The rest of the verses kind of lay out, the deacons assist the elders in uniting the church into God's image. But what they practically do is they just, they meet needs. They, they care for one another. You look at verse 3. Verse 3 begins with therefore, right? This idea, because this is happening, because you're dividing, because you're allowing things that are not gospel issues to have a bigger role in your life than the gospel, because this is taking place, Here's what you should do. Pick out from among you seven men, seven men who are going to lead, full of the Spirit and full of wisdom, the two things we're told here. Spirit being pneuma, sometimes it just means spirit or soul, but most people believe this is the Spirit of God, and yeah, the rest of Acts 6 would back that up. Wisdom being Sophia, which is, a, is both an earthly and a spiritual wisdom, right? You want guys who are, who are essentially going to lead here to say, let's make sure the widows aren't being overlooked. But also, let's make sure that this unity is still being protected. In verse 4, the apostles say, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Again, this is not the apostles saying, You guys take care of this job over here, deacons. And by the way, this is probably a less important job because we're devoting ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You can... You, it's so easy to maybe read some smugness into that. But the Greek words there, devote, is to continually give oneself to. That verb can also be translated to serve. And then when it says ministry of the word, it's the phrase diakonea tu logu, the service, the attendance, the needs of the word. So the apostles 
use the same word to describe what they're going to do with the word and with prayer that the deacons are going to do in meeting needs. So essentially they're saying, look, we're going to take care of the spiritual needs. You guys are going to help us take care of the physical needs because one person cannot do both alone. A small group of people cannot do both alone. We have to make sure if we are truly staying in the image of God, in the unity of Christ, we make both of these things a priority. And we recognize that as other places in Scripture talk about, there are different people who will be gifted and qualified to these different roles. And I love, I love that they take this so seriously that in verse 5 we're told that one of these seven leaders is a man named Nicholas who is a proselyte of Antioch. I don't know about you, proselyte is not a word that I have ever used. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen it outside of the scripture. So if you've used the word proselyte in the past seven days, I mean, kudos to you because that is not in my vocabulary. But proselyte just simply means a newcomer, a foreigner. But in this context, it would have meant a Gentile. And you think about why would that be such a big deal? Go back to Exodus for a second, okay? With all of our understanding, when they built the temple, could the Gentiles be in the temple? The Gentiles, I mean, they they may have had like a designated little spot they could congregate in the corner, but the Gentiles could not even be in the temple, much less be part of serving in the temple. And here the early church says no. Not only are we going to allow them into the fold, they're going to lead the fold. I love that. They say not only do we, do we have to learn to love other cultures well, but if we don't allow them to like literally serve right alongside us in leadership, we are sorely missing the image of God. And I love that when they do this, what they say, and when they put it together, it pleased the whole gathering They said it before the apostles. They prayed and laid their hands on them. So in the sight of everybody, they say that this is a a specific purpose they've been set apart for. This is a picture, if you've heard us talk about ordination. This is like an image of what's taking place there. And then the Acts pattern in verse 7, just right back in there. The word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied. And the coolest part of all that we read over, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Watch this for a second, okay, church? The four chapters leading up to this, the priests, the Jews, have been the ones who have been attacking the church. They have been spewing out evil rhetoric against the church. They've been going after church members. They've been imprisoning them. They've been literally throwing them under the bus. But when the church decides it's not going to overlook people based off of their culture, that they're going to hold together the unity of God and they're going to practically do this by meeting the needs of those around them, the ones who have been persecuting them the worst are starting to come to Christ. That's huge. It's not when the church rallies together to try to stand against the Jews, do the Jews get it? No, it's when the church says, let's look internally. 
Let's realize where we're not right with the image of God. Let's, sir, we get the image of God right ourselves first, that the rest of the world, those who were literally trying to kill and imprison the church, they're coming to Christ. They're coming to the fold. That is a powerful picture of the gospel church. And this connection between such radical transformation taking place when meeting physical needs and meeting spiritual needs are being held together, this is not just in Acts 6. If we looked back at the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, he does in 1 Timothy say, Timothy, you need to establish deacons. Like, you have to get leaders who are going to help you with this. And then he says in this, his second letter, he says, when you do this, Timothy, here's what you get to do. In the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is ready to, who's to judge the living and the dead, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. This sounds exactly like Luke saying, hey, if you raise up people that are going to help you shepherd the church in unity through meeting physical needs, you will be free to shepherd meeting spiritual needs. If you remember all the way back, I don't even remember where this was in our calendar, but if you go all the way back to the mid-20s in Exodus, when God is just starting to give his law to his people, there's laws concerning right worship, ministering to a spiritual need, but also how they were to live with themselves and with other nations, how they're to meet their physical needs. We also can't overlook, this is the example we've seen in Christ. I mean, listen to what Christ declared about himself in Luke 4, 18 through 19, and that's a reference to an Old Testament prophecy. He says, this is who I am. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I mean, can we, can we not hear the spiritual and the physical that is taking place in those verses, right? Giving sight to the blind, literally freeing the oppressed. These are very physical needs that Jesus is meeting. But Jesus is quoting a prophecy about the coming Messiah saying, I'm not just going to show up and let a bunch of people out of prison and make a bunch of blind people see. I'm going to restore Dignity. I'm going to bring you back into God's image because God is, is desperately waiting for his image to be made right with him again. There is a spiritual need here. And I love church. It's not an accident that when the early church of Acts and the early decades after Jesus, they're saying, oh, if that's what Jesus did, we got to do that. Like to the degree that they established these two different offices in the church with elders and deacons to say, we have to have people who are going to help hold us accountable to this. Because we understand that when Jesus did that, the whole world got to see what God looks like. And if he's left us to be his disciples, we got to do this work. And we got to make sure that we are being led to do this work. So this, this is your, as your pastor why my heart is to do this well. We have, we have seen God at work, church, in this past year. But I do not want that to just be like something we look back to fondly as we go do other things, right? We need this embedded into the DNA of who we are. And when we think about leadership, again, going back to two weeks ago, it's not just 
filling a, a position so that we can do certain things or offer certain things to people. We want to make sure we are being shepherded into the image of God. This is where we get elders and deacons from. And as we think about kind of some closing thoughts with application here, for us personally, we have to be careful to not pursue a one-size-fits-all kind of mentality here. I don't think it's an accident they set apart seven different people. These guys are all going to have different backgrounds and different ideas as to how to do this. And I was trying to think about some story from my life as to, okay, where, where do you learn about the balance, the tension between, you know, where do I meet the physical need, where do I meet the spiritual need? But I realized some of you guys have much more powerful stories in your own lives of how you've seen that to be true than I have in mine. Many of you guys live or have lived with friends, with families, with coworkers, with clients who, or you yourself, have gone through seasons of depression or anxiety or mental health, addiction, where you feel that tension of, I have a physical need that has to be met or you want to meet that physical need for somebody, but, but you can't move to where you're enabling them. Where you see that someone has a spiritual need and you want to be able to fill that without moving to the point of creating dependency. right? Many of you know this tension well already of what it looks like. And you know in your relationships that you, we, we can't just do the same thing for everybody if we're trying to meet these needs well together. But there are some practical things we can do, and they come from the book of James, which many of us are familiar with because James says, faith without works is dead, and that scratches our American itch of saying, oh, thank you, we can go do something, now we're free. We like James. But the first two chapters of James really fit this tension. James introduces saying, hey, there's both physical needs and both spiritual needs that you guys are going to have to hold together if you're going to love one another well. In chapter 1, verse 22, he does say, be, hearers of the, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Yes, if we don't put into practice the word of God, we're going to miss the truth of it. But he follows it up in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 by saying, well, but don't serve with partiality. Don't, don't just go meet physical needs where it's easiest for you to, and where it's comfortable for you. He says we're holding, there's spiritual needs that need to be served as well. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, you may be familiar with it. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So there's some connection between the faith and works. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, oh, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But don't miss in verse 22, as he's giving the example of Abraham, he says, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. The two are held together and they cannot be separated. And then he follows in chapter 3 by calling us to tame the tongue. That is, we're working on these meeting physical needs of others. He says, well, there's some big spiritual issues you cannot overlook along the way. So the application that James gives us, it's, it's five things in the last three chapters of his book 
The first, pursue wisdom. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, pursue wisdom. The second, pursue peace with others. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. The third, look for what you can do in the moment to help others. Chapter 4, verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 6. The fourth, be patient. 5, 7 through 12. And then the last bit, pray. So James says, I, I, I can't really tell you exactly what that looks like for every single situation. But in every situation, pursue wisdom. Pursue peace. Look for what you can do in the moment. Be patient and pray. So as we think about application for our church, as it relates to deacons, we would have to say, look, we need to look for leaders, for deacons, who do both of these well. That they're able to meet physical needs, but they also understand the spiritual needs. And practically, they live pursuing wisdom, pursuing peace, looking for what they can do in the moment to help others who are patient and who pray. But then for our personal lives, guys, we got to ask ourselves, who around me do I see needs spiritual healing, physical healing, right? Like we cannot meet people's needs if we don't even know where they are. And I think most of us kind of have some vague understanding of like, well, sure, all, all the people around me need something. Well, yes, but if you don't ever get to take the time to meet someone, to know what the need is, we're not just going to blanket meet it by accident. We may, and that would be kind of nice. But who around me needs this healing? All right, then once you've kind of identified that, think about, okay, how can I pursue wisdom? Like if I don't know how to help somebody in their needs, we can ask God for help with that. We could go to the Spirit and say, God, I feel like you've burdened me. I see my neighbor. They're struggling with this. I want to help them. I have no clue what to do. Like, will, will God not honor a prayer that says, I want to live out your image here, Lord. How do I do this? How can I pursue wisdom? Then we say, okay, well, how can I pursue peace? Maybe the first step is to go meet peace with them. Right? And I say th this one in particular is huge because when we... When we don't know what to do, we often do nothing. So sometimes just showing up, your presence can communicate, I want to be at peace. I mean, you think about when God looked at his world broken apart from him in sin. We saw this in Exodus, but we see this in Jesus. The first thing God does is he shows up. He sends his, his pillar of cloud by fire, by day and by night, to remind his people, I'm here with you. He raises up Moses to go to his people and be there with them. He comes literally in Jesus to be with his people, giving his son the name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Don't overlook. When your presence shows up, that tells somebody we want to figure out a way to be at peace. So maybe it's just starting with presence. But consider, how can I pursue presence or peace with others? Then, then, what can I do in this moment? If you're like me, and I feel like this is not just unique to me, uh, but we tend to freeze when things are really overwhelming. There, there's some people that just, man, when they get moments of crisis, they're like, we need this, 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 and this. And those people are the 911 dispatchers because 
they know which resources and to call to where. Some people, that comes very naturally. Some people have to work really hard at that, okay? We tend to freeze. And most of it just comes from the fact of, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know what to do. Church, one of the most freeing things that I realized, and I still have to remind myself of, which is where last week's sermon is still kicking me, God might not be asking me to take care of every single one of their needs at that moment. God might not be asking me to be playing Savior and Redeemer for that person. Why? Because that's what he does. But what I can do in that moment is join the bigger work that he's already doing. So what can we do in the moment saying, all right, I can't, if I'm going to visit a family who had a loved one pass away, 99.9% of the time, I'm probably not, no matter how much I pray, I'm probably not going to bring their loved one back from the dead. Okay, I might not be able to meet that need. And I may not have the time to physically sit in their house once a week for the next six, seven months to provide counseling. And I may not have all the resources to go buy meals to just show up and provide things for them because everything is harder when you lose someone. Right? I, I might not be able to do all of that myself, but I could do one thing today. Let's do that well today and see what the Spirit leads for the next moment. And that kind of the overarching one, and I don't think it's an accident, James ends here as he says, pray. Right? The, the best thing we can do when we're trying to figure out in this moment, okay, I don't have a formula, but I, there's a physical need, there's a spiritual need, I need to go do something, pray. Pray. Because the Lord knows what he's doing in that person's life. And if we ask Lord, help me figure out how to go join them. He will. I hope, church, we, we see from Acts, when we do this well, the world notices. And even those who may be the most obstinate to the faith end up becoming obedient. That's a powerful change. That's something I hope New River Fellowship is known for. So as we trust the Spirit to guide our hearts as we ask these questions, let's pray together, and then we'll respond by taking communion. We say, Mighty God, I humble myself for faculties misused, for opportunities neglected, for words ill-advised. I repent of my folly and my inconsiderate ways, my broken resolutions, my untrue service, my backsliding steps, my vain thoughts. Oh, bury my sins in the ocean of Jesus' blood and let no evil result from my fretful temper, my unseemly behavior, my provoking pettiness. If by unkindness I have wounded or hurt another, do thou pour in the balm of heavenly consolation. If I have turned coldly from need or misery or grief, do not in just anger do the same to me. If I have withheld relief from penury or pain, do not withhold thy gracious bounty from me. If I have shunned those who have offended me, keep open the door of thy heart to my need. 
Fill me with an overflowing ocean of compassion, the reign of love my motive, the law of love my rule. O thou God of all grace, make me more thankful, more humble. Inspire me with a deep sense of my unworthiness arising from the depravity of my nature, my omitted duties, my unimproved advantages, thy commands violated by me. With all calls to gratitude and joy, may I remember that I have reason too for sorrow and humiliation. Oh, give me repentance unto life. Cement my oneness with my blessed Lord, that faith may adhere to him more immovably, that love may entwine itself round him more tightly, that his spirit may pervade every fiber of my being. Then send me out to make him known to my fellow men.